It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, and welcome again to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast, The Plodcast. It's your weekly escape to the country for a bit of wildlife, history and general rural chit-chat. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast. And you can contact me on editor at countryfile.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. And please do leave likes and feedback on your podcast provider. It all helps us. In this episode, I'm joined by historian Emma Wells to talk about what she's been missing while under lockdown. Emma is a medieval historian and is a great wanderer of the landscape. And I saw one of her tweets expressing her longing to explore rural churches and other sacred sites. So I thought it'd be worth having a chat with her about why these places are so special. How would you describe yourself? Medi- a medieval historian, ecclesiastical historian? Um, late medieval slash ancient era ecclesiastical historian. <laughs> um, and we've chatted before about, because your, your sort of loves and interests are very much tied to the countryside. Is that the thing you've missed most then during this lockdown? I think so. Just... Just going into these beautiful buildings and also their surrounding churchyards and you know the scenery, the wildlife, the architecture, and and also the people you meet along the way. And what's not to miss? Yeah, I, I, the yearning grows stronger as you as you can't get it. So, so I mean, rural churches. Uh, you've you've tweeted a lot about. It, you've written a heck of a lot about it. Um, what, what's the attraction of of to you of of these funny little buildings out in the countryside? Oh, well, where do we begin? Um, I suppose it's important to say, and I, I'm sure many people believe that churches are not just buildings. They're, um, you know, they're much more about the people. You know, buildings matter. Buildings speak. They are expressive. You know, that they, they say something. And churches, above anything, above all these buildings, say a great deal. Um, you know, and it's not only for those who worship in them, but they're full of memories. You know, they're there even even to this day from from uh, birth to burial. Um, so I think, although there were many people perhaps who once populated the pews, and, you know, of course, there's not as many as there used to be, the majority of people have grown up around churches. They've moved on, you know, they've seen people move on, or they've celebrated some of their greatest times in churches. Um, 
but also as I as going back to the fact that they speak, that they are expressive, that they are experiential. Um, there's a great quote from Winston Churchill, who says, "We shape our buildings, and afterwards, our buildings shape us." And I think you know they very much do. And churches are sort of you know we ingr- we invest our greatest creativity, our greatest loves, our greatest moments, perhaps sometimes in church buildings, and you know, and not you know. Also, the architecture can't get the architecture. So there's something about the sort of obviously the physical appeal of the buildings, but there's it sounds like there's it's the it's the humanity etched into them and their surroundings. That's the um, I like that. I really like that. It's um, so there's an evocative element to when you see a church, all the stories that are attached to. It. So if you're out on a walk and you see a church on your path ahead, presumably you'll have planned one into your walk without any doubt. But it's like reading a church. Where do you go first? What do you? What's your first thing you would do? Well, I suppose um, the the best thing to do is before you go to a church. I suppose if you want to read a church, we call it reading a church. That's true. Um, is to before you even begin, before you even step outside and plan your visit, is to and, and I know we can't always do this if we're just on a you know stroll or whatever it might be. We come across one, but is to do a little research, and I think, or at least research uh, an understanding of how these buildings work so you know there are so many resources you know i think it's even more now because of our current current climate but to when you get there is to to look up to start outside to look at the material to look at the sort of plan form of these churches you know what sort of tower is there uh what materials are used to build these churches that's extremely important because you know, they change from place to place they can tell you about the wealth of the area, what was going on in the area, um, the, the people, everything. And where is the church positioned in the landscape? You know, these are all clues to why this church was built. Um, you know, as you move inside then, you know, you look at the nave. This was the the laypersons, the congregants part of the building. Um, you know, they took care of it. They maintained it. So what windows are the, what shapes of the window, should I say? What does the glass depict? And look, really look, because you might see the, the quirkiest little things such as oh, for example at in york um not a rural church but this is a this is a good um example is um there's a one of the first depictions of a man wearing spectacles so you know these tiny little things that you may not notice um upon first look just really look at them look up to the ceiling what type of roof is it look down to the floor are there people bur- buried below your feet and why so Every single aspect of a church and its churchyard tell you, you know, so much about architecture, history, the parish within which it is set, and the community. Um, you know, everywhere you look, there is sort of an ingrained history, an ingrained sense of being of of England, particularly in rural churches of the English countryside. Yeah, that's interesting, the little detail about um, spectacles. As a spectacle wearer, I'm actually really curious. When when did people start wearing specs? I mean, I, well, it, it's tricky to answer that, but uh, we have them in quite the sort of earlier period. So I think, if I remember rightly, that window is 14th century, but they were certainly you know well before then. Um, you know, we had glass well before then, so it's just that's the first representation yeah. we have. So amazing! You know, I think that's really interesting. So you can look for sort of elements, little clues into. Um, but I, I, the whole church, I'm, I'm assuming, gives you the same sort of insight into previous lives. 
Um, I always tend to go to have a look at the, sort of the knights lying down on, you know, the, the kind of effigies of knights. Is there something sort of slightly romantic about these? Um, what do they, I mean, what, what can you tell us about those effigies? I know this is quite specific, but there's, they're always sort of seem to have the feet resting on dogs and um, various insignia. What, what does that all kind of... It, it... I, I would, we'd have another podcast to go through all this, but it, <laughs> it, it is um, a lot of them date from the sort of chivalrous era of the, of the Middle Ages. So, as you say, they have all these um, different um, insignia and attributes that are related to several different things. Um, you might get little dogs at their feet, you might get mourners. A lot of them are tied to either some might be the way they died, some might be how they died. You know, as in the position that they held as they as they perished, a lot are um, related to the family. So their arms, their heraldry, um, and you know, technically, as I say, the position, their rank in society. So everything pretty much has a meaning. Um, some of them, as I say, you might have sort of little people at the bottom and all around, um, and they're actually little mourners because you know you want more people, whether representational or physical to be mourning you in your death so that your soul could pass through purgatory and you would make it to heaven. So all of this really is spending a lot of money on these vast, beautiful monuments or chantry chapels, which a lot of them reside in, um, which are sort of private chapels, essentially, in order that people would go on even during your lifetime and after your death to pray for your soul. So it's a sort of paying your way through to heaven really. yeah okay and making yourself look popular as well by putting lots of figures around <laughs> well, uh, quite <laughs> that's that's interesting so i mean that's i think they're one of the more sort of obvious things to look for in churches particularly because they seem to be ready to tell a story I, I sometimes feel that some of the churches that I, I sort of drift into i wish there was more of those stories to, perhaps they just don't know them but um you know where this where this knight went and how he how he met his end and um what his what he got up to in his short brutish life um but what else what else would you would you sort of get say you know this is something you should definitely have a look at if you if you're if you're wandering pastor it's i mean what i will say is actually and i agree with you that we don't often tell the true history of our churches i think we can certainly do better at that and i often think true that it's it is nowadays it just it's as much the history as the art and architecture that people tend to go and visit they they visit churches for inter, for tourism and heritage as much as they do for for worship nowadays but um it it entirely depends on the church. I mean, you know, in England, I would argue we have some of the greatest parish churches, the greatest rural churches, and it is within those rural locations that you will find the most interesting sites um, from, oh gosh, spires that look like sort of sort of alien spaceships uh, for different reasons to, you know, great round towers, towers that were, we have one not far from, from me in Yorkshire, which was supposedly the most southerly um, uh, southerly battlemented tower, you know, so that the the Scottish come, couldn't invade any further down through into the north. Um, Just were fortified. Yes. Were oh, really? Many of them are. Many, if you look at the top of the tower, they have battlements. A lot of towers have battlements and the, the, those sort of, you know, square bits at the top. And even in my local church, there is the, um, uh, the parapet 
and everything. Um, uh, it's still that has gone, but there's still the sort of niche where it was. Um, so you've got to remember, I think, as well, that a lot of these were not just um, there to, you know, sort of as houses of God, but also as um, sanctuaries and, and sites of protection as well. So churches had a lot of different meanings in the past. Um, as I say, some of them were sort of great representations to particular families. Some of them might have shrines so or tombs for saints. And in fact, a lot of our rural churches do have them. Some of them have been turned into different things. So if you see a sort of tomb set in a wall, it might have an effigy on top, it might not. It may at once have been a saint's tomb. It may have then been turned into a founder's tomb. So that's the founder of the church, basically someone who spent a lot of money as well, um, who's endowed the church. But originally there might have been a sort of Anglo saint there where one would go and, you know, a pilgrimage to um, and worship at in order for a cure or in the hope of some sort of intercession to, you know, to get you to where you need to be or to cure an illness. I thought, yeah, that's... That's, there's lots of things to unpick there. I, I really liked when you said sanctuary, um, because I think on a walk today, I mean, it's been beautiful weather of late, and there's a sort of go into the cool silence of a church, and you feel an instantly a, a sense of kind of, ah, but it's those stormy, wet walks where you you really hope the church doors open. Um, but in the past, they provided a, a more sort of life and death sanctuary. Is that what you're saying? for? Yeah. for Absolutely. I mean, um, and, you know, as if we're talking about as well, the sort of this liminal space between sacred and profane, if you want to call it that, between the secular and the religious is we often think of the, you know, the, um, the porch area or something, you know, one of the West entrance, wherever it might be. And in fact, nowadays we just sort of pass through them um we might stand there if, if there's a wedding but a lot of people actually got married in the porch you didn't get married where one would now um a lot of porches for example above them would be schoolhouses um archives for uh, you know sort of um document repositories um and also pilgrims would come you know when you're on your pilgrimage you might come to the church and some of them had little sort of rest stops if you will where you could uh, you know sit for the evening or lay for the evening get water and food and whatever you might need as well so they had so many different um functions that perhaps they don't perhaps they do in different ways now but um we don't really realize that i don't think so uh, people on the run from the law could they take sanctuary in a church yeah you could do that yes the 40-day sanctuary and you know i suppose it's Durham Cathedral has that huge sanctuary knocker and we always think of that but yes you could so they were um they were spaces for sanctuary there were spaces for protection as well not only physical but also mental I suppose yeah okay so so if you were wanted for something that you could you could you could hold out in a church and they couldn't come and get you is that right I mean, technically not, but we all know the story of Thomas Beckett um, and Henry II. He was actually in uh, Canterbury Cathedral when he was cut down, you know, the, the knights burst through. Um, and you could only, you know, as I say, it's 40, 40 days was sort of your limit. Um, oh, really? So us. after 40 days, you got turfed out and had to face the consequences? Yeah. I mean, you can't stay there forever. I mean, some people did, of course, and you could move, you know, slip away between night from um, in the night to go from one church to the other or something like that. And, you know, there are there are many, many stories like that. But 
how how much of them are true, of course. But uh, yeah, of course you could. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, so that sort of modern day feeling of sanctuary you still get in churches is is a kind of, I you know I, I I'm romanticising to try and make that link, but it definitely has that feel. I think that's still there, and I think as soon as you walk into a church, there is that sigh of relief. The sort of world closes off, the outside world closes off from you, and no matter whether you're in you know the middle of the countryside or in the middle of a city, sometimes you do feel that sort of innate sense of calm, um, and you you know, sort of hustle and bustle just dissipates around you. And I think that's that's the beauty of a church building, especially because of its such dominant architecture that it can enclose you from all those goings on outside. Yeah, yeah. It's prof- I think we all need a bit of sanctuary at the moment. Um, uh, talking about the architecture, is it easy to tell the age of a church just by looking at it? I mean, is there some tips that you can give? Or you know, a square tower means this, a round tower means that? Yeah, I, yes and no. Um, y- you need to do your research. And it takes a bit of practice, of course. What I would say is, again, I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, is get a get a sort of uh, research guide a, a guide not not particularly the guidebook of the church but there are some great resources um there's rice's architectural primer and i know church's conservation trust have a sort of pull out leaflet and I, I say that because the more you do it the more you go in and know what you're looking for it, it's just practice and it's oh i know what that means i know what that type of tower means um as i say it takes practice and study of course there are wonderful programs such as the one I run at the University of York in parish church studies, which you can do. <laughs> but um, you can, of course, there are always anomalies. And the problem with a lot of the study of churches is that um, they are a patchwork. Um, they are a palimpsest, uh, you know, layer upon layer of architectural history um, and therefore, you know, architectural design. So it, it can be quite tricky. So you might say, for example, an Anglo-Saxon stone church built 7th to 11th century. The features are sort of, um, you would often have round towers at this time. Um, They're very tall churches, very thin walls, few windows, no aisles, no transepts. Um, You get sort of herringbone masonry, pilaster strips. They're very wonky at times. Um, And we also think of the sort of round archway and even a pointed window very typical of this period. That's all Romanesque. Is that that Romanesque? Well, technically, yes. I mean, um, that's technically the French term. We often call it Norman. Um, It's the same same time period, really, because the Normans obviously invaded us. So the continent calls it Romanesque. Um, Call it Norman. But it's similar. And, you know, Anglo-Saxon Norman, very similar. Normans are a little bit more dominant in the architecture. Um, Again, rounded archways much more sort of sturdy, thick columns, sometimes have the sort of spiral chevron decoration, very typical of this period. Um, barrel, tunnel vaulted, little sculpture. So, and then as you go into the Gothic period, things become much more decorated, much more regimented, but also much more flowing, much more ornamentation. But mm. the problem with that is, of course, we then get the Neo-Gothic in the 19th century. So we have a little bit so that's so, the Victorians. The Victorians were who, who loved it, wanted to copy it. Yeah. And, and that period was an interesting one because we had the we had much restoration, um, which meant that they ironically got rid of the original medieval fabric and replaced it with their own idealistic, romanticized version of the Gothic. So in its place. So actually the in the 19th century we lost a lot of it, and that's why 
we got great institutions such as Society of Protection of Ancient Buildings because, you know, William Morris et al. came along and wanted to ensure that that wasn't the case. Really? So that's shocking. I didn't know that. I always thought the, the um, Reformation was what destroyed so much. I mean, obviously it did destroy a lot of precious uh, church art, but Victorians, just because they fancied a slightly more idealised version of it. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Um, and I think, I mean, we could be here forever talking about this, but it, but it comes back to often the medieval period being seen as this much more sort of idealised utopian England, utopian countryside England, you know, what we think of as, you know, chivalry and knights and all that. And there was a real um, sort of romanticization of that period. Um, you know, think of Rossetti and Desperate Romantics, all that, that kind of period. Um, and so they wanted their own idealised version of that. At the same time, the beauty of original craft was was sort of coming back again so that's why we got William Morris and you know they wanted to protect to protect that but also save what was there now at, on, at the same time the Reformation did destroy a lot if we want to call it destruction um a lot was eliminated um you know we tend to, I think in school we're taught that it's Henry VIII who got rid of so much it's actually Edward more so than anyone but Edward the Sixth, we're talking about. Yeah, is son. Henry yeah. Henry's son? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean Henry really. I mean this is arguable, but he he didn't actually change a lot in terms of moving into the church. The church in England, we didn't have a church of England just yet. But it was Edward who kind of reinforced the get rid of the glass, get rid of the wall paintings, get rid of the rude screens. A lot of the sort of decorative elements that we know and love of the medieval church were swept away by Edward. Um, so he kind of came in and finished what his father started essentially but he worked yeah. fast then didn't he he was only he was a, he died at he was quite young wasn't he when he died so he must have worked pretty yeah. fast yeah i mean it was more so those around him and the sort of enterprise of men that were you know pushing it forth but of but within this sort of small window of time so unlike today <laughs> it, it is a really interesting period though because i think as well, though, a lot of not everyone conformed. And so you might have a parish down the road who bought into it and they could afford to buy into it, got rid of all their glass, replaced it. And then, you know, the other church in the middle of rural England, you know, the other way didn't. And they mm. couldn't afford it. They couldn't get rid of it. They might get rid of the eyes or the hands because those were where the most power came from, you know, to worship. But it's very interesting to see how our churches have changed over time and what's been kept covered, protected and why. So there's, there's all these discoveries to be made. I mean, I know it's out, it's out there and known, but for you, you still find, you still find discoveries and surprises. Well, yeah. And we know very little really, um, you know, to this day, just because something has been perhaps researched in the past doesn't mean that a new bit of research won't come in or a new bit of evidence that overturns what we thought or a dating or, a wall painting or a tomb or whatever it might be and you know I myself looked at a, a tiny little church in the middle of Cornwall um there was a what was thought to be an easy sepulchre where the mass was celebrated and held um right near the chancel at the uh, the high altar in the chancel at the east end of the church but actually I discovered it was originally the tomb of the patron saint of the church so it had been there you know for a thousand years and the church had built up built up around it and a whole sort of pilgrimage scheme within this church from the roof bosses to the stained glass to the floor to the wall paintings everything had been sort of decorated and matched in order to show pilgrims where to find this shrine 
within the north, um, the northeast side of the church. So, what other discovery? What, what sort of actually? What are your favourite churches that you? I mean, this this dreamy summer walk that you're going to do at some stage. Where where will your where, where would you really love to be walking? Which particular church and churchyard? I it's very difficult for me to answer this question because I have too many. Um, but um, and you probably don't want everyone I, to be crowding around your particular favourites. But uh, um, my favourite sort of. See, this is just too difficult. Um, I think for me, though, an, an area, if I can say an area that has arguably, there are two, um, maybe, maybe more than two, but particularly two, are um, Cornwall. Cornwall has is just, you know, you can walk a mile down the road and you will come into contact with the cult of saints, with sort of religion within within the landscape. It's it's innate within the Cornish landscape. It's everywhere. Why is, why is it that Cornwall, is it sort of Celtic connections or something? Yes, I mean it's it's developed for several reasons. Now a lot of now this sort of links to with pilgrim routes and why we have nowadays so many pilgrim routes, but also so many walking routes and hiking routes, etc. And it's because they started often as sort of ancient drovers' ways, so you know ways where people would just simply walk along a sort of mod, uh, sorry, historic sort of motorways, if you will. Um, but also where people would trade, where it was most safe to walk. And along there, because it was safest place to walk from ports to port or church to church, or should I say cathedral to cathedral, something like that, or pilgrim site to pilgrim site, everything sort of started up in between. And then this sort of great enterprise of religion um, was sort of carved out of the landscape and carved into the landscape as a result. And so you get these little wayside shrines and chapels and everything and and because it's so out of the way, but it's so Cornwall particularly is so um, sort of insular, and you have the, so many coasts all around it that um, there there are so many places you can be going to and need to get to, but not much in between. So everything is sort of clustered. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's, some, well, there's definitely a, a feature there of these different styles, a sort of journey through country churches i'm sort of excited to go and look at all the churches around me i mean wales is sort of seems a bit different to me that there's not that we don't seem to have in herefordshire which is only 10 miles from where i'm sitting i'm in abergavenny um the churches seem to have tall spires but where i am here they're just squat squat towers yeah and it's i mean a lot of spires were added for on parish church were added slightly later um Square towers, round towers, um, usually, usually are sort of your medieval towers. Of course, we get them later. Um, but it, it really does depend on where you are and what's going on and why and what has happened. And if you're, you know, if you're on the border to Wales as well or something like that, you get a lot of defensive, um, battlemented towers as well. And, you know, churches used for defense, much more defensive purposes or a multitude of purposes, um, much more than you would. For example, in East Anglia, where you have a lot of trade. So in East Anglia, Kingsland, that area, you have these great wool churches, these vastly wealthy, extremely large churches would still have a lot of rude screens surviving, wall paintings, stained glass, because it was such a wealthy, affluent area because of the port over at Kingsland, et cetera, and all this wool trade driving the money through. Oh, so that so this, the, the state of the church can give you a real sense of what the countryside was like. So... Um... Um, earlier on, you talked about churchyards as sort of, again, 
places to read, discover a little bit about the history. And you mentioned the wildlife as well. I was in a churchyard the other day that had a funny little, like a porch, a sort of gate. I can't remember what it's called, but it was like a weird little peaked gate. A, lich gate. a yeah. what? A lich gate. Gate, yes. So what's what's well, let's start with the lich gate, then we can talk wander around the graveyard. But uh... it's it's all to do with um, death, I suppose. Really, um, it's it's often where the the beer would stop um, before before processing into church. So that's where the idea comes from. And that's why you, I mean, they're all very different. You have some great lich gates um, and gate houses or lich gate houses, if you will, as well. Some of them were turned into cottages. Big enough to turn into a cottage. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, I, I posted about one the other day, which I found, and I wish I could remember where it was. Perhaps the, the grave digger, for example, um, perhaps he, you know, he might've lived there. Some of them were turned into little prisons, little jails, little stocks as well. So they might have had a multitude of purposes, but mainly they are they are for these, um, you know, mortuary practices, part of the mortuary funeral procession, really. To keep the body in the lich gate before, before a funeral. It's sort of where it would wait and then it would be processed into church and where, you know, one would collect themselves. And some, some would wait, you know, over time, overnight. And, you know, there are different, as I say, different functions for different things. But um, OK, that's interesting. Well, I look at a lich gate in a different light. Now I know that sort of bodies have rested in there and um, has that look. They might also, like the church building, the church building might be the oldest um, building within the village or the hamlet or within the area. The same with the churchyard. It might be the oldest enclosed piece of land within a parish, within a local area. Um, and apart from obviously grave dig digging, um, it might be relatively undisturbed for hundreds of years. So, you know, you have this huge diversity in terms of wildflowers or grasses or trees, borders um, and people at the same time. So in a way, it, a churchyard for me is a sort of, repository or archive if you will for the local area and you could you know wander around and see all these great people and you can often find these great epitaphs and i mean my local churchyard where i grew up was the first winner of wimbledon and he was also the vicar and he used to go up and down king's cross um to king's cross and back and um i remember once he was almost going to be late for the final wimbledon match but he in order to make the sunday service or something like that and he's there buried right outside the east window so you know what are the rules about visiting churches? I mean, are you allowed just to go in if the door's open? I mean, technically you can visit most churches. Um, what I would say, of course, or churchyard is, uh, you know, do you need permission? No, but yes, um, depending on who owns the church. Um, not all churches are obviously in the hands of the Church of England. Um, some are also redundant. They're owned by the Church Conservation Trust or Friends of Friends Churches, if, you know, if they're disused, etc., um, so sometimes they might not be open. A lot nowadays, particularly in the countryside, in rural areas, are um, they're locked and therefore you have to go and find the key holder. But we even have apps now that tell us, um, the key holder app, for example, who's holding that, that elusive key. Um, but one can enter a churchyard, and I think, or a church, and as long as one is respectful, quite, it is, you know, this is all, they are also sites of mourning as well as of contemplation or of worship. Um, they all go hand in hand. And yes, one can go up to um, to a gravestone or a memorial, whatever it might be, and look and read. And, you know, I, I think it's just respect not to... I always jump over, if I can, jump over each grave. Um, and, you know, it's it, we, we still do... Uh, tr we still hold traditions um, and respectful traditions because if a... Um, 
if a gravestone is is you know wobbling and it's particularly unsafe or something like that the gravestone should be um put downwards with the inscription facing downwards so it's protected and therefore it's over the body as well so you know one knows where that body is so go in by all means see what is there look at the wildlife look at the trees but you know there might be people in there for different reasons and just respect that well, that certainly inspired me to take a look at churches and headstones in churchyards as much as I do at the bird life on my walks. Thank you, Emma, for taking the time to talk to me, and I wish you many happy discoveries once this enforced hibernation is truly over. Tune in next week when I embark on a spiritual journey of my own, an unexpected adventure into the dark world of owls and nightjars. It's a thriller. For now, keep in touch by emailing me, editor at countryfile.com. So you've been listening to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast, produced in Bristol by Jack Bateman. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.